Lots of Russian money in Cyprus. So where's the bailout love? Today, Friday, March 22nd, this is The World. It's payday in Cyprus, but the country is in financial crisis and the banks remain closed. Some people are getting desperate. People are urgently trying to get to ATMs and take out as much cash as they can, hoping that our euros will be worth something tomorrow or next week. Also, President Obama wraps up his trip to Israel. We profile a school in Gaza where Palestinian kids are learning Hebrew. Because it's the language of our enemy, we must know how they think, how they talk about us. Plus, the six-foot-seven power forward from Iran who's making March Madness a little more Persian. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, it's The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For many in Cyprus, it's payday, but they can't get at their hard-earned money, not when the banks are closed, and that'll continue until further notice, as the small island nation's leaders desperately try to negotiate a bailout from the European Union. The deadline to avoid a collapse of Cypriot banks is Monday. One proposal still on the table would pay for the bailout in part through a tax on people's bank accounts. That sparked a run on banks, prompting authorities to shut them down, which leaves regular Cypriots like Nicole Dracu unsure about what's happening on payday. We were supposed to be um, due our salaries today, but unfortunately, with all the banks being closed, they can't affect any transactions. There are no online transactions. From what I've seen on the street, people are urgently trying to get to ATMs and take out as much cash as they can, hoping that our euros will be worth something tomorrow or next week. In addition to the EU, Cyprus was looking to Russia for some financial help. But today, Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev made it clear Moscow will not help until Cyprus strikes a deal with the EU. Russia has a lot at stake in this crisis because a lot of Russians have money in Cypriot banks. Many of those Russians, about 40,000, actually live on the Mediterranean island. The Guardian's Moscow correspondent Miriam Elder arrived in Cyprus last night. Uh, so you're in Cyprus's second largest city, Miriam. It's uh, Limassol, uh, specifically to take pulse of the Russian expats there. Describe the kind of Russian community that has developed in Cyprus over the years. Well, it's interesting. It seems that there's sort of a, a double community. First, you do have these super wealthy Russians that either live around Limassol or, or live back in Russia and other cities and will fly in to deal with their bank accounts here. But then on the other hand, you also have a community of, I suppose, what you could call average Russians, just, you know, shopkeeps and hairdressers and lawyers and financial advisors and in tons of fur stores, which is very strange for a country that is perpetually warm. And in, entire community that's been created to feed all this Russian wealth that's being kept on the island. You'll see um, a lot of the ads for luxury properties and for banking are written entirely in Russian. Right. I doubt the rich Russians, the oligarchs, are standing in lines at, at ATMs. But are those middle-class Russians who are there as part of this kind of Russian infrastructure, are they lining up? 
Yeah, absolutely. I talked to quite a few people who spent, you know, an hour or so at the ATM today trying to take out as much cash as they could. You have people who have lived here, Russians who have lived here for 12 years. So at that point, they almost consider themselves Cypriots and they're living through the crisis just as their Cypriot neighbors are. Now, as for those Russians, the really wealthy ones, they have a big stake in Cyprus's banks, but I'm still not sure why Russians got interested in Cyprus in the first place. Well, a lot of wealthy Russians prefer to keep their cash abroad. Uh, Russia remains unpredictable in a lot of ways for wealthy people. The reason that they came to Cyprus in particular is because Russians had been coming here since the collapse of the Soviet Union, but then in, in the past decade or so, a lot of financial infrastructure has been put in place to draw Russian money here. So there's a beneficial mutual tax treaty, which means that Russians who uh, keep their money here will avoid paying taxes in both Cyprus and Russia. Then there's also a visa-free treaty. So there have been a lot of agreements between the governments to boost the amount of Russian money in the Cypriot system. And how much money do Russians have in Cyprus? Do you have a number? The best estimate we have comes from Moody's, the rating agency, and they say that it's about $32 billion, which is almost half of the entire amount of deposits in Cypriot banks. So with all that money there, don't the Russians have a personal incentive to make sure the country and Cyprus's banks stay afloat? Uh, yeah, and that's what you hear from a lot of people on the street here, you know, in these average Russians who are sort of servicing this larger community, saying, you know, well, we've been living here for such a long time, and there is so much Russian money here. We really th expected the government to come in and um, create some kind of a deal to help Cyprus stay afloat. Dmitry Medvedev, the prime minister, did say that Russia wouldn't offer any sort of help until the EU stepped in, but he did leave the door open to offering some kind of aid in the future. So now Cyprus is pinched between the Russians and the EU. It's this tiny country, not like Italy or Spain. Part of the island is Turkish, the larger part Greek Cypriot. It's kind of an oddity. What does it say about the rest of Europe, do you think? Well, I think uh, what this crisis has shown is just a very troubling degree of, I guess, of incompetence inside the European Union. That's what you're hearing from people here. People are very shocked that their situation was allowed to go this far. They refer to the European Union as a family. And uh, one person told me he was very surprised that one family member didn't help another. So it just leads to an entire questioning of, of this system. It is a tiny island, but uh, it's very representative of, of the entire infrastructure of the EU. The Guardian's Moscow correspondent Miriam Elder in Cyprus. Thanks very much. Thank you. President Obama left Israel today for Jordan. That's the last stop on his Mideast trip this week. Earlier, he had visited the West Bank as well. One place that was not on the presidential itinerary was the other Palestinian territory, the Gaza Strip. President Bill Clinton went there in 1998, but now that Gaza is controlled by the Islamic militant group Hamas, it's tough to imagine a U.S. president setting foot there. Hamas rejects Israel's right to exist, so it may surprise you to hear that Hamas-run schools in Gaza have started teaching Hebrew. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Gaza City. Government-run schools in Gaza put the main language of the Jewish state on the curriculum at the start of the school year. What's the capital of Palestine, the teacher asks in Hebrew, and the students respond in unison, Jerusalem. It seems like a scripted routine for visitors. The students, all girls, are ninth graders, and they are some of the first Gaza public school students to study Hebrew in nearly 20 years. 14-year-old Nadine Al-Ashi says she likes it. It's easier than English, she says, and also... Because it's the language of our enemy. Why is it important to learn the language of your enemy? To attack them, 
because we must know how they think, how they talk about us. That's a version of a common expression in Arabic that goes like this, learn to speak the language of your enemy so you can protect yourself from his evil deeds. Hebrew teacher Maisam Saeed al-Khatib says there was a lot of interest in signing up for Hebrew. So I ask, is there any chance this could somehow lead to better relations between Israelis and Palestinians? No, we are not looking for developing things with the Israelis. Uh, We are uh, learning Hebrew to protect ourselves and to defend our country from the Israeli occupation. On the streets of Gaza City, it's easy to find people who speak good Hebrew. Like most middle-aged men in Gaza, a 44-year-old taxi driver who gives his name as Saber speaks Hebrew fluently. He worked in Israel for 12 years, back in the days when tens of thousands of Palestinians from Gaza had jobs there. He says more young people in Gaza should be learning Hebrew. At home, Saber says he watches Israeli TV every day, not just the news, but movies too. He reads Israeli newspapers. They offer insight and a perspective that's missing in the Arab language media. His kids don't really understand Hebrew, but he wants them to start, never mind the fact that few Palestinians from Gaza are allowed into Israel. He says it's especially important to hear what the Israelis are saying about the Gaza Strip. There are 400 government-run schools in Gaza. Only 20 of them offer Hebrew as an elective for ninth graders. But there's a desire to expand the program. Mohammed Abu Shuker is deputy minister of education. Why Hebrew, the minister asks? Even if we don't agree with the Israelis on many things, he says, we are still living in the same region. Israel is more developed than Gaza. And he says Palestinians who know Hebrew can learn from Israeli TV and websites. There's another reason, Abu Shukar says, and this is to prove that the reputation of Hamas in Gaza as a closed-minded leadership is false. We are so open-minded, he says, that we even teach the language of our enemy here. That might be debatable, but there seems to be a tacit acknowledgement with this decision on teaching Hebrew. The Hamas leadership appears to be looking toward Israel with its stronger economy rather than Egypt with its new Islamist-dominated government for the sake of Gaza's future. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Gaza City. For many visitors to Israel, Yad Vashem is one of those sacred destinations. It's not a religious site per se. Yad Vashem is the memorial dedicated to those who perished during the Holocaust. Today, President Obama paid his respects there. He also received a poignant gift at Yad Vashem, a manuscript of sheet music. The song was composed by the former chief cantor of Amsterdam, Israel Eliyahu Marocco. The song is titled Had Gad Ya, and Cantor Morocco rewrote this traditional Passover song in 1941. The manuscript had been donated to Yad Vashem by Ruth Morocco. She's the cantor's daughter-in-law and now lives in Sylvan Lake, Michigan. Had Gad Ya is a song written in Aramaic where God takes care of the Jewish people by annihilating all their enemies. It's traditionally sung at the end of the Seder night. Now, my father-in-law has written it in 41 in April. And the song, the words of the song must have meant a lot to him 
because the Germans were already occupying Holland. So I think that that is why he went back to this song and gave it a new face, a new melody. So the the song, as uh, many Jews know, is sung, as you say, at the end of Seder dinner, which happens this coming Monday night. I mean, given the coincidence uh, of that and the sheet music being handed as a gift to President Obama, was it thrilling to know Obama now possesses this music, or would you have preferred it stay at Yad Vashem? The actual music stays at Yad Vashem. What Obama got is only the facsimile. Sorry, a facsimile. Yes. So what does that mean to you, that this important piece of music for you personally, for for Jews, uh, was given as a gift? It's very meaningful because the Germans tried to annihilate all the Jewish art, all the Jewish music. And here, all of a sudden, it comes into the open, and not just into the open, but to the United States. The president got it. The whole United States got it. It's alive again. I'm sure my father-in-law would have been thrilled. What happened to your father-in-law? I mean, he was chief cantor of Amsterdam when the Nazis invaded in 1940. Well, he was in the last transport into a camp, and he died. All I know is we found his name on a list of the transport, and that's it. I don't know anymore. We'll have photos of the handwritten sheet music and a photo of your father-in-law, Cantor Israel Eliyahu Morocco, on our website. Ruth Morocco, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Again, you can see those photos at theworld.org. And we'll leave you with a different piece of music sung by Cantor Israel Eliyahu Morocco. It was recorded in the 1930s in the main synagogue in Amsterdam. is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a 30-day presidential campaign. It may sound like a dream to people here, but it's real in Venezuela. Hugo Chavez died of cancer earlier this month, and two men are running to replace him on April 14th. One is Enrique Capriles, who ran and lost against Chavez in October. He's the big underdog here because he's facing Nicolas Maduro, Chavez's hand-picked successor. John Otis has a story. Maduro has a huge campaign war chest. He's giving away free government houses to poor people. And his every move is covered by pro-government TV, which dominates the airwaves. Maduro is banking on a massive sympathy vote in the wake of Chavez's elaborate funeral. 
Chavez won a huge and loyal following by investing billions of dollars in programs to lift Venezuelans out of poverty. That's why Maduro invokes Chavez's name at every opportunity. According to a website tracking his speeches, Maduro has mentioned Chavez more than 3,400 times in the 17 days since his death. By contrast, the Capriles operation is more seat of the pants. I almost get lost trying to find his national campaign headquarters in Caracas because there's no sign on the building. Inside, workers are rushing to paint offices, hang electoral maps, and sign up volunteers. One of them is Andrea Radonsky, Capriles' godmother. She says they're scrambling to put together a campaign in 30 days. We wake up very, very early. Some call people, some we look for money, some we look for food. If we have the time to, you know, make a T-shirt or a, a hat, I really don't know. I mean, we cannot sit and think, can we do it? You have to do it today. The Capriles campaign benefits from the knowledge, experience, and support networks from last year's presidential run. Yet many potential supporters remain demoralized because Capriles lost that race to Chavez by 11 points. Now, workers must convince potential volunteers and voters that Capriles has a fighting chance. In one room, two dozen women learn how to set up phone banks to spread the gospel of Capriles. One of their toughest jobs is to rekindle last year's excitement, says volunteer Kamala Jolie. You fight the battle. <laughs> I mean, there's no, no, no other way. I mean, just go ahead and try to motivate people. Because, you know, we're letting people are very up and down. Capriles has pledged to campaign in all of Venezuela's 23 states, but his tour got off to a rough start when the government, citing bad weather, closed the airport where his plane was scheduled to land. Capriles called it sabotage. Then there's the cash problem. Although many businesses complain about the government's socialist policies, they also have government contracts, and they fear retaliation if they donate to Capriles. Forget about it. Carlos Romero is a Caracas political analyst. The majority of the Venezuelan entrepreneurs refrain to give money to the opposition. They have a lot of business with the government, they have a lot of commitment with the governments, and they are afraid of the government. So, why is he even running? Capriles is only 40, but if he loses back-to-back elections within just six months, some say it would spell the end of his presidential ambitions. But veteran political reporter Roberto Giusti tells me there was no time for an alternative candidate. Capriles, he says, is the only one with national name recognition. Back at Capriles headquarters, volunteers like Radonsky burn the midnight oil. So we just work and work and work, no sleep, eat a lot of junk, (laughs) and that's the way it goes. They'll have to work even harder, according to one of the latest polls. It shows Maduro leading Capriles by 14 points. For The World, I'm John Otis, Caracas. By the way, Maduro has now mentioned Chavez's name more than 3,700 times, according to that website John mentioned earlier. You can follow the online count at theworld.org. 
One of the biggest issues facing the next president of Venezuela is the country's soaring crime rate. Shootings and kidnappings have become commonplace in Caracas, and the number of murders in the country is now twice what it was when Hugo Chavez first became president back in 1999. In fact, according to the UN, Venezuela now has the fifth highest homicide rate in the world. Jeremy McDermott is with Insight Crime, a think tank that studies organized crime in the Americas. He's in Medellin, Colombia. Jeremy, what's led to these high statistics in Venezuela? There's several different elements which came together during President Chavez's administrations, which have led to this epidemic that we have, not just in in murders and kidnappings, but also drug trafficking. And that's perhaps the big change up to 200 tons of cocaine is believed to transit Venezuela. On its way to the United States, this has led to an increasing involvement of corrupt elements of the Venezuelan security forces. This is the National Guard, the army, and the various different police forces. We call them the cartel of the suns. The suns refer to the stars that Venezuelan generals wear on their shoulders. Now, this is obviously going to have a massive knock-on effect because if the people that who are supposed to be fighting organized crime are also involved in it, well, then impunity and toleration of criminal activity is going to become widespread. And that's what we're seeing. But Hugo Chavez himself was a soldier. How did he allow the murder rate and this crime rate to just gallop away under him? I mean, he was a populist with a strong arm. It seems he'd have kept his eye on such basic human needs as public safety. He, first of all, politicized the military in an enormous way. And indeed, the constitution that he introduced uh, in 99, any promotions to lieutenant colonel or above had to be signed off by the president. You will find either serving or ex-military officers in almost every organ of the state. So he couldn't really challenge the military. What you're telling us uh, sounds like potent ammunition for the opposition in, in this upcoming election. Certainly. The one thing that was interesting when President Chavez was still alive is that the opposition tried to hammer this point, and it would seem like a political no-brainer, but they never gained any traction. And there was this strange phenomenon where even though Venezuelans were aware and complained heartily about the worsening situation in crime, they did not blame Chavez for it. They blamed incompetent advisers. They blamed corrupt elements in the police and security forces. I don't think Nicolas Maduro is going to escape as unscathed as President Chavez did. Just socially, what happens with crime rates when they get this high in a place like Venezuela? I mean, uh, won't people just start to leave? And isn't that going to decimate the economy? Let's talk, for example, about the kidnapping element. Most of the kidnappings, and it's anything up to 40 a day in Caracas alone, this has become an almost accepted risk. Some companies and hospitals, they have a fund. Every month you have to put X amount of money into the kidnapping fund so that if and when you are kidnapped, this fund within the company, obviously an informal fund, will pay your ransom. It has become part of the daily fare of the people of Caracas, this threat. Jeremy McDermott with Insight Crime, a think tank that studies organized crime in the Americas. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Thank you. I'm Marco Werman. Ten years ago, the U.S. invasion of Iraq was supported by a coalition of the willing. 
Ahead, a former Canadian diplomat reminds us why his nation opted out. You talked about the coalition of the willing. I think I'd more likely call it the coalition of the credulous and the calculating. Plus, how Iraqi refugees are doing in California. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. It's been 10 years since the start of the war in Iraq and nearly a year and a half since it ended. But refugees from the conflict are still being admitted to the U.S. by the thousands. Many Iraqis are settling in the small city of El Cajon near San Diego. Adrian Florido from the public radio collaborative Fronteras has a story. A decade after the first rockets fell uprooting their lives, the 12 Iraqis in this English class are just now trying to build new ones. So how tall are you? Five, 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 five feet, nine, eight, and... Nawar was 14 when the war began in 2003. After a few years, his family fled the violence of Mosul for Jordan. They lived there until just three months ago, when they arrived as refugees to El Cajon, a city near San Diego. They had family here. When you talk with Gorgis, he seems nervous and excited about building a new life here. And like most new refugees, he has one immediate task, to learn English. We're helping to um, really do sort of an intensive deep dive into rapid acquisition of the English you need for a job. Erica Buri works for the International Rescue Committee, the resettlement agency that runs this program. It expects to resettle another thousand Iraqis in this area just this year. All told, about 11,000 Iraqis have arrived here because of the war, making it one of the largest Iraqi communities in the U.S. And if you take a walk down El Cajon's main street, it's clear Iraqis are no longer just newcomers. They're becoming a part of this city's fabric. Aging storefronts are being spruced up with signs in Arabic. At the Venus Hair Salon, the owner, Ahlam I. Leisha, is surrounded by friends curling and blow-drying hair. It's an exciting time. This weekend, Ailesha is expanding into the empty space next door. This one going to be for women, and we have makeup per minute, we have uh, nails, and we have the five more station, five stylists over there. She says the growing Iraqi community is making her success possible. Ailesha has seen how this area has changed since early on. She resettled here in 1994, after the first Gulf War. Because over there, all the time, we scary, the war, bomb like the tourists, the, a lot of things over there was so bad. In the past few years, her family has left Iraq for the same reasons. 2008, they came in 2009. So your family is getting much bigger here? Uh, like, like more, more, more than 500 people. In El Cajon? El Cajon. In your family? In my family. What is that? Because like? I have a, uh, 14 uh, uncle and aunt. And each of them, they have like 9, 8, 10, 11 kids. Well, from a business perspective, it's been fantastic. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot more innovative business. Bill Wells is El Cajon's vice mayor. He thinks the Iraqis have infused the city with new culture and economic vibrancy. But he's also heard comments from some longtime U.S. residents who are wary about the Arabic signs popping up on commercial strips. There's a lot of... Uh, People that feel this is not really fostering assimilation, but it's uh, fostering a set-asideness. 
and there's a, an us and a them and this community and that community, and I don't think anybody really wants that. Right across the street from El Cajon City Hall, 29-year-old Sadiq Al-Bazaz opened Samoon Bakery and Restaurant about two years ago. He says he doesn't have much choice about his signs or his employees. Because, you know, a lot of people, they don't speak English, so we can't put any uh, American working here in our restaurant because he doesn't speak Arabic, you know. So we need to put Arabic people here working. Al-Bazaz studied accounting in Iraq, but he struggled to apply those skills here, thus the restaurant. He worries about fellow Iraqis who resettled in El Cajon without education or family ties and those suffering from the trauma of war. Many refugees live in large apartment complexes. It can be isolating. Hey, no foul, no foul. Get in front, get in front. Go, John. On a recent evening, Iraqi teens played soccer on a high school field here. They're in a program called Youth and Leaders Living Actively, or YALA, which means let's go in Arabic. It offers soccer training to students who commit to after-school tutoring so they don't fall behind because of their English abilities. The young Lebanese man who started Yala realized that refugee students needed school help, but they also needed exercise and, most importantly, to feel like part of a tight community. 19-year-old Ahmed Abdul Karim says the programs helped him cope with all the moves his families had to make because of the war. So I moved here and I played with, like, all the people that are from the same country as I'm from and went through it, basically what I've been through. So it was kind of like, like I felt like I was back at home. And it turns out that Karim's team is pretty good. Next month, they'll compete in one of California's most prestigious soccer tournaments. For The World, I'm Adrian Florido in San Diego. Remember the Coalition of the Willing? That was what President Bush called the group of 48 countries that supported the invasion of Iraq, despite the lack of U.N. authorization. The list of countries in this Coalition of the Willing ranged from Britain and Australia to El Salvador and Micronesia. Not on the list, one of America's strongest allies, Canada. In March 2003, then-Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien made this announcement in the House of Commons. Canada worked very hard to find a compromise to bridge the gap in the Security Council. Unfortunately, we were not successful. If military action proceeds without a new resolution of the Security Council, Canada will not participate. Paul Heinbecker was Canada's ambassador to the UN at the time. He joins us now from Ottawa. Ambassador Heinbecker, what was it like at the UN during that time? What kind of pressure was coming from the US on a country like Canada to authorize an invasion? There was a presumption, I think based on hubris probably, that when the time came, Canada would sign up like everybody else did. Uh, We were signaling that we were not there, but Washington wasn't on receive at that time. It was on send, Mm. and I don't think that they were listening to us. I was the ambassador in, in New York. I had access to the reports of the UN weapons inspectors, and it was evident to me that the U.S. was putting exclamation points in places where they should have been putting question marks, that the evidence really wasn't persuasive. What was the biggest question for you? Fundamentally, Hans Blix, the chief weapons inspector, and his people were basically going pretty much where they wanted to go in Iraq, and uh, he wasn't finding anything. And I went to see him, and I said to him, uh, what's happening? He said, I've asked the United States for the best intelligence they have, and what they've given me 
I go and investigate and I don't find anything. That was one thing. Another thing was when the uh, president said in the State of the Union address that there is uh, uranium material being imported from uh, Africa to Iraq. I have a colleague who worked at the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. It took them one day to show that that was a forgery. Yet the United States was building a whole case of going to war in part on such evidence. The person who signed the document who was supposed to be authorizing this transfer wasn't in office at the time the document was supposed to have been signed. I mean, we've heard this week from a number of players at the time about the intel reports, uh, that the intel reports the U.S. saw were being confirmed by the Chinese and the Russians, by other parties. Why do you think Canada rejected those positions? We belong to a five-country intelligence-sharing operation, United States, Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So we have quite a bit of experience with looking at intelligence. And when we looked at the intelligence, we just didn't think it was convincing. For reasons which were never perfectly clear to me, the United States seemed to find uh, a rationale for acting on the basis of pretty sketchy intelligence. And others, too, came to this conclusion. You talked about a coalition of the, of the willing. I think I more likely call it the coalition of the credulous and the calculating. There are those who are willing to take United States' word uh, on it, and there are others who thought that it was better to go along with Washington and to get along with Washington. In other words, they weren't prepared to question what they were being told because it was evident that it was a major priority for Washington, for the Bush government. I mean, Canada has often gone along with U.S. leads. What was the U.S. reaction to Canada's unwillingness to join the coalition of the willing? They say they were disappointed. I think that's the official word. Disappointment is not the worst thing that can happen to you in diplomacy. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, uh, it, the, the sum total of the cost was uh, some Canadian maple syrup being poured down the drain and a visit by President Bush being postponed. How much uh, was this about Canada taking a moral stand, or perhaps you, you'll, you would say a logical stand? And, and how much was it political? I mean, the fact that Canada was already deeply involved in the war in Afghanistan, and polls at the time showed very little stomach among Canadians for Afghanistan, and certainly not another war in another country in Iraq. Well, the, the politics of it were generally not favorable, but I have to observe that you know senior military officers were promoting uh, joining the war. The Canadian business community actually mounted a mission to uh, Washington to basically apologize for the position taken by their government because they were so concerned about what might happen to their prospects. The punditry and the the academics were full of the view that Canada had no choice, that when the United States took an action that it considered to be in its own uh, national security interest, that Canada must uh, go along. So there was quite a bit of uh, opposition, and it, and it took uh, the government, it took some courage on the part of the government to look at all of that and proceed uh, the way they proceeded. Ambassador, thank you. Thank you. Paul Heinbecker was Canadian ambassador to the United Nations from 2000 to 2003. He's currently with the Center for International Governance Innovation and directs the Center for Global Relations at Wilfrid Laurier University. Hey, how's your bracket? You know, March Madness doesn't usually provide a forum to talk about an athlete from Iran, but this year it does. Arsalan Kazemi grew up playing hoops in Iran. His hometown, well, that's the place we're looking for in today's GeoQuiz. It's Iran's third largest city, located just about 200 miles south of the capital Tehran, in the foothills of the Zagros Mountains. It's a city famous for its Persian rugs, and now for its six-foot-seven power forward. 
Now the answer is the city of Isfahan. Last night, Arsalan Kazemi was a long way from his native city. He was helping his University of Oregon Ducks get past Oklahoma State 68-55 in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Sports journalist Ali Karimi watched the game. I saw pretty much the same game I've been seeing since he was about 16 years old. He has a very natural knack for grabbing the carom, getting to the rebound. He gets in the passing lane. He gets a lot of steals. He's got good moves to the basket. I mean, you could see it when he was a kid. He was a very raw talent. He was able to play other sports that, that helped translate to playing basketball, like volleyball and stuff. I mean, I think that's where he gets the natural knack for like grabbing a rebound. So last night, uh, he got 11 points, 17 rebounds, and after the game, Kazemi jokingly apologized to his teammates for hogging all the rebounds. I apologize to them if I get, if I get their <laughs> rebound, but I just jumped to get it. So that, that, that's how it works. So, Ali, uh, Kazemi grew up in Iran. What is Isfahan, his town, like? And what's the basketball scene there like? It's a streetballer's town. I mean, they, uh, they play basketball on the street there. That's where most Iranian youth learn the game. You know, I would say playing sports is probably at a premium. There's not many that they could play with just a ball and a hoop. And then he gets to the United States. How did that happen? He came over as a prep, actually, and he went to the Patterson High School where he was uh, teammates with another future NBA player, Hassan Whiteside. That's and, down in uh, North Carolina, yeah? Yeah. And then he, uh, he went to Rice and, of course, transferred to Oregon. So as a teenager, uh, he made that decision to leave his family and come to America. Here's what he had to say about that. I came here to, first of all, get my education and get to play basketball. And the toughest one was sacrificing to see my family and all my friends back home and come to the country that I don't have anyone here. So that was the hardest decision that I had to make. Well, the Ducks were not favored last night, but they won. Do do you think uh, Arsalan Kazemi is going to be one of the keys to getting the Ducks advanced deeper into the bracket? Ducks are a pretty complete team. I mean, they're very well coached. I think they were snubbed in their seeding. I think this is an angry team, a talented team. This is a team you better watch out for. I personally had them in my bracket. I couldn't believe that the Pac-12 champion got a 12 seed. Yeah, a lot of people scratching their heads about that. Do you think Arslan Kazemi's got NBA talent? He's going to have some avenues to show his talents more. I mean, definitely one of the top prospects from Asia, for sure. There's upcoming you know, competitions. I think the Iranian national team really has a, a lot to, to prove. You know, in Iran, he's known as the king of the dunk. He was very athletic last time. He was kind of a third wheel. They didn't really know how to use him. I think maybe he'll have a much bigger role this time if the coach is smart and likes his job. Tell me about Kazemi's fans. Does he have a lot of them? And how about back in Iran? Are they into March Madness? I mean, the games are online. I don't know if they're able to access them online or not. But definitely in America, very much so. I think pretty much every Iranian, Iranian-American I knew in the United States picked Oregon. Um, <laughs> uh, definitely. Me, myself included. I mean, I mean, I just thought they were the more talented team. Do you think Kazemi's mom is watching? I think so. I, I think they communicate a lot with you know Skype and technology like that. I would assume that his family is watching and cheering on because this is his senior year. You know, this is what he plays for. This is the last time they're going to see their son as an amateur. He's going to go for it. I think that he's he's going to get drafted in the second round of the NBA. If it doesn't work out in the NBA, I think there's definitely a home for him in a, in a high level league in Europe or maybe big money in China. One of the two. Ali Karimi, a freelance sports journalist, telling us about Arsalan Kazemi of the Oregon Ducks, who next face St. Louis in March Madness. Ali, great to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This next story takes me back to 1984 when I first went to West Africa with the Peace Corps. One of the things I was required to read in my training was Things Fall Apart by Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe. I was in French-speaking Togo, though, and had to read it in French. And that really shows how important that novel was to the whole African continent. Achebe told the classic African post-independent story. Well, we learned today that Chinua Achebe has died at the age of 82. B. Bandele is a Nigerian novelist, playwright, and screenwriter who now lives in London. In 1997, he adapted Things Fall Apart for the British stage. B., you were born in 1967. Things Fall Apart came out in 58. And the book and Achebe were well-known when you were a kid, not just in Nigeria, but around the world. What was your first encounter with his writing? Oh, I first encountered Things Fall Apart when I was about seven, maybe eight years old. It was one of the very first novels I I read, and it was definitely one of the reasons I decided I wanted to be a writer Mm. when I was a kid. So a huge impact. Absolutely. One of the most important books for me. And for a whole generation of African writers. Yeah, why was that? I I actually think it's Achebe's best work. He he wrote it when he was about 26, and it's, um, it's almost... For me, it's just flawless. It's a masterpiece. It's his masterpiece. Remind us of the plot of the novel before we go on. It's basically the tension between a traditional Nigerian father and the modern son. But what happens? Well, the central character is a very tempestuous, very ambitious, ill-tempered man called Okonkwo. He confronts Europeans. You know, it's the first time Europeans come to Igbo land, to that part of Nigeria, with a colonialist Become Christian missionaries who build churches and convert people to Christianity. And Okonkwo decides to resist. And his decision has resulted in very tragic consequences for him. So a, a simple story, uh, it seems, but if you say it's Achebe's best work, what, what was it about the story or, or style that so affected you? I think for me, um, when I first read it, and it's one of those books I quite frequently reread, it's just got a great simplicity. It's deceptively simple. But beyond the simplicity is a great resonance. It's um, The more you read it, the more it reveals itself to you. I mean, I've heard the experience from others, and I've lived it myself. The first time a Westerner visits West Africa, there's a strong chance that someone will push things fall apart into your hands. Why is it so important for Africans to have non-Africans read it? Well, Achebe himself said he was compelled to write it as a reaction to writers such as Conrad. Joseph Conrad. Um, yeah, Joseph Conrad's Heart, Heart of Darkness especially. You know, for Conrad, Africa is one endless night. And Achebe wanted to respond to that and say, well, you know, we're not perfect. We're just only as messed up as any other race of human beings. And so he, you know, he wrote a book where every single character in it is just very complex. And I think in the complexity of his characters, a lot of us see ourselves, we're able to identify with those characters. And and so quite often when a foreigner comes to Nigeria, Mm. (laughs) inevitably they get given a copy. Right. So Um, when you were seven and reading this book as a kid, I mean, who did you identify with? To be honest, I... I just wanted to be Achebe. <laughs> I wanted to be the writer. It was it was about the world that I didn't know. It was set at least a hundred years 
before I was born. You adapted Things Fall Apart for the British stage in 1997. I mean, in a way, that's kind of another version of kind of putting the novel in a, a Westerner's hand. Is that why you did it? Actually, yeah, I, I, I'm an enthusiast. You know, if I love a book or I love a story, I want I want everyone to read it. I want everyone to experience it. And it took me nearly three years to convince the theatres here in the UK to put on a production of that adaptation. And we did it, and it was incredibly successful. It went to the States as well. It was on in Washington, D.C. Did Chinua Achebe ever see your show? He, he did see it, and um, I wasn't there the night he came to see it in Washington, D.C., but he apparently loved it. I, I met him just once. Um, he came to London here. And there was a reception for him in a bookshop. And, and I was in a queue of about maybe a thousand people oh my. who basically lined up to shake his hand. And that was the, the closest <laughs> I came to meeting him. Did you have any moment to converse with him when no, you shook his it hand? No, it was just, um, good evening, Professor Achebe, and shook his hand. Did he connect that you were the man who had staged the play? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, I did. spoke to him actually a few times on the phone. Right. So he did know. B.E. Bandele, a Nigerian-born writer and playwright, he's just finished directing his first film, an adaptation of fellow Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's novel, Half of a Yellow Sun. B. thanks very much. Thank you. In 2010, Chinua Achebe spoke with the BBC on Nigeria's 50th anniversary. Here's a clip from that interview. Nigeria had a very interesting beginning. We had a lot of expectation uh, about how it was going to fare and how good things would become. And our freedom and independence was very real to us. Unfortunately, it has not worked out that way. Uh, if I've given the impression that I excuse myself or people like myself, I do not excuse anybody. There is enough blame to go around. But those who offer themselves for leadership and are put in a position and given the resources, these people must take the fundamental blame for what's happened. However dark his thoughts about Nigeria's present situation, it's uplifting to know that Chinua Achebe was ultimately hopeful for the future of Nigerians. Don't give up and don't let anybody push you around. We, we are not fools. Nigerians are, are brilliant people. My best wishes to Nigeria on our 50th anniversary. The next anniversary will be great if we say so. Thank you. Chinua Achebe died yesterday in Boston. He was 82. You can hear a recording of Achebe reading from his groundbreaking novel, Things Fall Apart, and watch a documentary about his return to Nigeria after a 20-year absence. That's all at theworld.org. We end with music from Nigeria and lyrics inspired by Chinua Achebe's literature of resistance from the late great Fela Kuti and his track, Sorrow, Tears, and Blood. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. Everybody run, run, run. Everybody scatter, scatter. Some people lost some bed. Someone nearly died. 
police, they come, I mean, they come. Confusion everywhere. Ah, that's so. Time when they go. Time to wait for nobody. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.